This podcast is brought to you by the book, The Memoir Project, a thoroughly non-standardized text for writing in life, published by Grand Central Publishing. Recently updated and reissued in a new edition, it will teach you everything you need to know to write memoir. For more information, see the show notes or purchase wherever books are sold. Welcome to QWERTY. I'm Marion Roach-Smith. Each episode, I talk to writers from all genres to discover what makes a good read. And along the way, we discuss their writing process, discover their tips, and talk about what matters most to writers. So step away from the computer or typewriter for a bit and join me. My guest today is Amy Halloran. She's a writer, author, teacher, and cook. Her Instagram handle is Flower Ambassador, which gives you some insight into her point of view. Amy has turned some well-earned personal politics into a business, producing a multi-platform life in the advocacy of grain. Hi, Amy. Hi, Marion. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad you're here. How are you today? I'm pretty good. It's sunny. Uh, despite the pandemic, I feel okay. Good. Well, good. It's, you're the person I really want to talk to about this. So many people want to take something they feel strongly about and turn it into a writing career. Maybe it's something that they do. Maybe it's something that they love. Maybe it's something they believe in. And for you, the politics of food seems to be your thing. And it's one of the more compelling topics we have before us right now. And yet, I think most of us miss it amid the wild, gorgeous sort of food porn that's available online. We, we kind of think of food writing as that mouth-watering, high-styled, gorgeous Instagram stream, those websites, those online videos of how to in that sort of upscale eating. But that's not what you do, despite the fact that what you make, all of what you make, and we'll talk later about maybe those squash English muffins, but what you make is delicious. But you really trade in food justice. And in doing so, you illustrate and have educated us what it takes for us to eat. So every morsel really does have a story behind it, doesn't it? It has a story and it has a lot of people. And I think that that mm -hmm. is the biggest thing that we're missing. And I feel really compelled to tell the stories of the people who are in our food system. Yeah. Well, I think, and I think it's worthwhile. And I look at you now having really read widely in your work, and I realized you're really an agent for change. And I think in that, a lot of writers can relate. So the question I think for a lot of people is, how do I put my politics to work for me on the page? And so to explore that, let's, I'm just going to do a quick little 360 around you so people get the context. You used to run a farmer's market in the city in which we both live, Troy, New York. You run a community meals program and food pantry at a human services agency where you collect and redistribute groceries. And you teach classes in cooking, baking, and food justice, and you volunteer at a youth-powered farm. You make and share meals in your dining room. And so while your writing and cooking may seem very different, if somebody's thinking that way, it's more the point that they share the same problem, that we don't value food and feeding and the farming and, and the environment. So how in the name of goodness did you figure out to become this agent of change and put it to work in this wonderful writing? What was the, like, what was the beginning of the aha for you? I think the aha happened 20 years ago when I got 
a side job running the Troy Waterfront Farmer's Market. I was its first paid manager, and I always had food jobs as a fiction writer. That was my first impulse, was to write fiction and plays and poetry, and I did that exclusively in my 20s, but then um, I got... I, you know, as I, I had a child at 20 or at 31, and I couldn't any longer separate my my money work from my my writing work, um, and I started floundering around trying to earn a living as a writer, but that doesn't writing is a crime that doesn't pay very well, so I always had extra food <laughs> jobs, right? Um, and you know, I worked in yeah. restaurants, I ran, you know, food co-ops, just always in food because you got to eat. And I always loved food and I was always baking. And so I got a job running the farmer's market. That was the side job. But I remember as I got to know the farmers and my and observed my interactions with them, I felt so vulnerable and silly because I knew nothing about their work. And I realized, Mm. and I had grown up in the country, so I had farm kids in my classroom, in all of my classes, but I didn't understand at all what it was to get food from the ground. And I felt a tremendous responsibility to these people that I was was managing their their business lives, running the farmer's market. And I also Mm. saw that I... I wanted to be a kind of studs turkle. Um, I was never mm-hmm. going to be fancy food. I'm, you know, knee jerk. Uh, I was raised Irish, so we're knee jerk anti fancy, right? We're not allowed to even <laughs> <laughs> consider the possibility. Knee jerk anti fancy. Oh anti-fancy. my god! It's it's so um, <laughs> it's so ingrained in me, but. I So I wasn't going to go for restaurants and that kind of stuff. I, there's plenty of people doing that, mm-hmm. and I'm not articulate in that. But, like, how did the cheese get to us from R&G Cheesemaker? I didn't even, mm-hmm. I was so embarrassed, I didn't even know how a cherry tomato grew. And I live with gardeners. That's so great. You know, so they, mm-hmm. my family gardens, and they were my, they were also introducing me to nature and food as being this this collaboration and but it really turned me I just remember looking at the farmers and thinking don't see how stupid I am please don't see how stupid I am so your writing kind of closes the gap between where our food comes from and the table on which we eat it is that what the the writing does it sort of stitches together those those quandaries yes yes Lovely. I try to um, catch us up. I, I'm really enamored with some historical um, writings that I can't quite figure out how to bring in. But I, the 1900 census was the first time that more people lived in cities in America than in the country. And so for 120 years in America, the work of farming has gotten further and further and further from sight. And I really want to talk about everything along the way that we can't imagine, that Mm -hmm. we don't know. Mm -hmm. 
Well, having Studs Terkel as a role model is a pretty good thing to do. For those people who don't know Studs Terkel's work, he was based in Chicago. He wrote a classic called Working, in which he really explored the lives of people whose working jobs support us all. And he worked every day of his life until the very last, lived a good long life and published widely. And I think you couldn't do better than that. And, and I love the fact that that's who's sort of percolating underneath your consciousness here. It's, a, it's tremendously informing. So you're also giving the great advice to people that they need to have that kind of a role model, you know, think around, think about the things you've read. And you, you, I've read that you believe that you have a quote in one of the interviews I read with you that you say that we live removed from the realities of farming. I want to illustrate the work that it takes to eat. And I love that. The idea that the work that it takes to eat is something we should be pausing for uh, a moment before we consume it and honor. And so what are we talking about when we connect with that work? Are we talking about really think, I mean, do you sit before you eat? Do you pause and, and, and think back to the person who picked and who planted? Are you um, at your table actively practicing that kind of consciousness? Or is most of that energy going into the writing? Or is it both? I think it's mostly, I think that way more in the kitchen. Um, mm-hmm. And that's always, that was my first interface with food was as you know pancake maker and you know family baker I really always connected there and that's where when I'm handling stuff I I notice and try to reflect upon all the work that I can't see because I certainly don't fill my house with exclusively local foods. Um, it's it's rather impossible to do that. But I think the more that we can visualize and know, say, know or guess what's going on in the pound of beans that you can or can't get at the supermarket. And what do you know about the flour supply chain that has been interrupted? You know, I think the this moment of the our entire world's changing has really given an opportunity for people to slow down and take a deeper look at what's going on. Um, and, and that's how I get at it. I love that. And I think it's true. I mean, I think all of this, we're, we're still in the middle of COVID. We, maybe in, we may not even be in the middle of COVID. We're in a time of COVID, I think. And it's a better way to look at it. And we have the ability to slow down. I'm noticing the birds more. I'm cooking more elaborately. I'm thinking more about the food. It just ha- We just have the time to do it. And I think that's a great encouragement. And that the, the, you're able to build a writing career from that is so good in terms of messaging to people who want to do that. What do you love? What do you do? What consideration do you bring to it? So that's a great message. And, and, and it's pretty lofty stuff. And I'm glad we got that out of the way because now we have to talk about pancakes because <laughs> damn girl, you love your pancakes. <laughs> I mean, it's lovely to have this, you know, agent of change conversation, but I, but I've read so many times and listened to you on the radio say that a single pancake is actually what led you to this advocacy. So you do need to just get us a little bit on board about how a pancake can lead to a multi-platform life. Well, I think it's about your curiosity. You know, you really have to notice yourself and, Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, so notice the moments where you feel vulnerable and say, uh-oh, I think I better understand why I don't know this stuff. And that's what led to thinking about the whole food system. But then also notice the things <laughs> that you love. You know, I really, yeah. really have always loved pancakes. And when I was in Seattle, I lived in Seattle during the 90s, like a good... Um, it was the farthest I could get from upstate New York without a passport. So I moved out to Seattle. And I remember mm -hmm. the day I met somebody who said, oh, yeah, I make pancakes at my restaurant for lunch. And I was like, pancakes for lunch. Oh, my goodness. You know, any excuse to have cake. Yeah. Right. Every every That's single sin. meal of the day. I mean, yeah. I actually had somebody. I don't know. There's something cosmic about the pancakes. A million years ago, when I lived in Boston, somebody walked up to me and said, "You look like mm -hmm. someone who knows where to get a good pancake, <laughs> get a good plate of pancakes." So I just have oh, had the pancake fabulous. compass, and um, you know, really kept my nose in my own interests, <laughs> and eventually. It comes around, you know, I, um, I did keep the, the, you know, the paid work separate <laughs> or I would, you know, for a long time so that I can, you know, subsidize my curiosities. But I think it's, it's so, mm -hmm. so important to find interest and engagement in what you're doing. Um, and, and that could be anything. I mean, mm -hmm. along the way I wrote mm -hmm. for food safety news and, um, I didn't, I don't have any training in mm -hmm. food safety law, but it allowed me to explore a lot of different things. That did influence me in the wrong way, though. There was some, I got so nervous when I was writing for food safety news. So there's another memo to think about what you get involved in. Uh, and there's, and then when I was, when I got mm -hmm. to exploring the grains, um, that was August 10th. 2010, so 10 years ago, my husband brought me a cookie, and that had that cookie is the thing that really set me on this grain path because it had flavors that were so tasty, and I couldn't understand mm -hmm. why, as you know, in 40 years of obsessive baking, I hadn't been told to get more than King Arthur flour. I knew that. King Arthur was what I preferred that had a certain quality, but I didn't know to do yeah. more. And so I started to investigate that and I began asking everybody I knew about what was going on with flour and I began getting whatever jobs I could to write about regional grains. I got a job to the, the Northeast Organic Farming Farmers Association had a day focused on grains. So to get to go to their conference for free, I got a job writing about something else, um, which was the good agri agricultural practices um, session mm -hmm. that they were also leading. And I kind of piggybacked my way toward writing exclusively about grains. Um, so the, the, the evolution here, what you're giving to the advice here to the young writer is that you, you stick with your knitting, or in this case, you stick with your pancake, or, and, and it gets heightened by a cookie if you're very, very lucky. And this leads us, not so eventually, but, but in, in terms of you know number of years on the planet, 
in a fairly quick way to this beautiful book that you've written called The New Bread Basket, which is published by Chelsea Green Publishing. And I, I love that even your, your publisher is on brand. It's an employee-owned company. It's a, it's a gorgeous publisher. But this is a real love story about grain. And you make the point, as you just did in the book, you make the point that you just did, which is pretty much we know about like vegetables and fruits. And we're, even the, the, the least of us is beginning to understand that there's a variety of things and we can recognize them a little bit, you know, a variety of apples, variety of lettuce, variety of tomato but that grain has sort of came literally late to the table in terms of this food renaissance that a lot of us are very happily living in. So this, um, and yet grain has been around for 10,000 years. It's been one of the staples of Western civilization. So you bite into this cookie and this taste kind of sets off this whole area of exploration for you that leads to this book. Wow. Wow. And how exciting for all of us. Um, but but talk about, if you would, please, that personal journey. I mean, that's a long journey because you interview and talk to and get on the page, growing, milling, malting, marketing. You talk about grain, about what it is. So along the way from your curiosity of biting after biting into this cookie to to publishing a beautiful and very well received book did you get daunted by the sheer size of the assignment you had taken on because this really does take on grain in the largest sense this book i don't think i was ever afraid of how big it was i was i was so charmed and the people who were doing work in regional grains and in trying to figure this out are so engaged. And as soon as I began to meet them, I had infinite energy because they were so in mm. love with what they were doing and there's and so willing to share with me. I'm, I met so many generous people who excitedly brought me in to work. Bakers who had me on the phone for an hour and a quarter when they had a bakery to run, but I needed to understand something about flour. And they were perfectly happy to give mm -hmm. me that. Um, Farmer Ground Flour over in Ithaca, New York, they brought me through field to table. Uh, and Wide Awake Bakery, I would go to their their baking class lessons. And, and just this... Uh, I had, the people in my book are really mentors in a sense because they just invited me into their work lives in a beautiful way. And there was no reason to ever think that this couldn't be handled. It was just, mm -hmm. it was like getting an intellectual hug. It's gorgeous. It really, it really was. It was the, the luckiest thing in my life to, to land in this work. I've never had anybody say no to me when I've called them up and asked them if they would let me come and see what they do for a living. And that's taken me in a, a very different orbit than yours. And and yet mine was always driven by passion too. And if you call someone and you say, I want to understand how it is you mapped the gene for that, or I, I want to understand how it is you discovered that way of doing that kind of bridge construction, or I want to understand how you go from field to table with this grain. I think it's an honor. I believe you're honoring the person. So I always encourage young writers 
when they need to do research for a memoir, for instance, if they need to do research for a nonfiction book, if they're writing fiction, and you've got a person who runs a flower shop, call a person who runs a flower shop and say, may I please come in and watch you work for the day? I've always found it to be the most generous response. Everyone has always said yes. So I love hearing that they did the same for you. And I, I think it's very encouraging for young writers. This is where accuracy occurs, is going to see the thing for real. So you've turned this into a multi-platform life, as I said, which means that you teach, you cook, you write, you broadcast. And some of that has to be uncomfortable. You know, not everybody likes to be seen on video. We're all learning in Zoom meetings what we look like in Zoom mm-hmm. meetings. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And it's not that pleasant sometimes to get that eyeful of, holy Toledo, um, is that what I look like when shot from above with, with bright light in my face? So what, if, if, if the reporting wasn't uncomfortable, has any of this sort of multi-platform experience, and obviously you started, as you said, as a fiction writer, and you, so you started as a writer, but as you moved out and you're, and you're really branching out. I love to see what you're doing. Has any of it been uncomfortable? And, and, and if so, which part? And what did you do to sort of get over that fear of podcasting or broadcasting or whatever? Oh, sure. It's always moments and they're often surprising moments. You get you catch yourself off guard. Um, I was in a, a Zoom baking class today where I didn't think we were going to have to introduce ourselves. I wanted to just watch and I had an opportunity to introduce myself and I could hear my voice trembling and I knew I didn't do it in the confidence that I should but um no that's okay you know that stuff happens and when I when I first started doing baking demonstrations I would watch my hand shake as I as I flipped the pancakes but Nerves are always going to happen. You eventually get comfortable. Um, I'm a very, very conversational writer, and I'm finding with the Instagram Lives that I decided to do when um, the the shutdowns started to happen, I said, oh, I think I just want to grab a microphone and do this. Oh, actually, I think this is an Mm -hmm. important point. The reason I decided to do this is that I pay attention to the people that I admire and see what they do. So there's an incredible organization out in Oregon called Culinary Breeding Network. And I try to copy everything Lane Selman does. She is trying to link Mm -hmm. uh, farmers to chefs through food breeding. And so Lane was Mm -hmm. doing these farmer interviews. And I said, oh, uh, time for me to do that. And um, there wasn't any fear with that. Um, I've gotten so cozy with just chatting with people and most of the people that I'm talking to on these Instagram lives are my friends or colleagues. You know, I know their work. So there's already a rapport and I'm diving into that rapport. And so maybe that's the advice is um, think where, think of where you feel comfortable and, um, try to draw that comfort into something Mm. you know if you have a good relationship with someone start there and try to get into the 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 platform with 
an ease. So the first Instagram Live I did was with uh, a woman who runs a malt house and a mill over in Massachusetts. And since we have a very reasonable, easy back and forth, our conversation did too. Yeah. I noticed. I love those. I like so you do this series of Instagram lives based on something someone you admire who does these other interviews. And I think you know, we all know the quote, imitation is the greatest form of flattery, but it, it but it is. Um so for me, I also find that wanting to know something is a great generator. I'm curious about how people make a multi-platform life, for instance. So I'm just going to ask you, and you're going to tell me. And in the meantime, you're telling all everyone who's listening. So I think you can go with curiosity. I think you can go with the love of a pancake. I think you can go with biting into a cookie. I think that, you know, if your head's in the right place, you can get this kind of inspiration to write and form a life around that from literally biting into a cookie. You're my very favorite example of that. But then when you meet that discomfort, I think you're right. You just kind of have to tuck into it and say, that was my handshaking while I'm baking, and that's just the deal with it. That's that's for real. It's not a reason not to do it, is what I'm saying. Oh, not at all. And so when you're cooking, you cook for a lot of people, um, community meals, managing a soup kitchen. You're always... Are you always writing in real time? I mean, are you literally, do you have a notebook next to you as you're whipping up a meal so that if there's one of those great moments of humanity in that community dinner, you're jotting it down? Or are you making notes when you go home? I mean, a lot of people worry about the real-time experience and how to report on it. What What's your best tip there? Well, my best tip goes back to a writer who I loved, James Purdy. He's a fiction writer who... Um, he mm-hmm. said of work, do something that's not going to tire you out too much. And unfortunately, cooking did tire me out too much. So I had to stop doing that recently. And um, mm-hmm. but I always kept a notebook at your side, you know, um, either mentally that can be your phone. I would I would talk notes into my phone all the time. Um, Good. You know, keep Good tip. keep paper around the house, write things down. And also I don't I don't worry that I'm gonna lose stuff anymore. Um, I'm not I have no discipline, no self-discipline, no regular no no other discipline. I just have no discipline. And <laughs> so I try sometimes to write every morning, but the only thing that really makes anything happen is demand. And um, so I... Deadline. Yeah. Demand and deadline. It's yep. totally, totally the way to do it. And it's always absolute last minute with me. I can't, you know, I'm trying to, try, I have two boys and I wish they didn't follow my habit, but they do. <laughs> and, you know, you just um, try for that and, and, I think if you can make those emotional notes, that that feeling that I was talking about where I noticed that I didn't know anything about the farmer's work. So that kind of just self-awareness, like, oh, there's something to write about. I've got this, I've got this right. confl- conflict that I need to explore. And um, mm-hmm. just paying attention to that and keeping those on your lists, like, oh. right. It's a great place to write from. I remember watching, I was addicted to crime shows and I was would watch them, but I'd watch them with my hands over my eyes. Now, th- what, what does that even mean? So I'd be watching these murder mysteries, but I had my hands over my face. 
So one day I thought, what is this about this murder mystery thing? And why do I have that response to it? And yet I can't stop watching them. And that led me to write a book on forensic science, go behind the scenes in the world for two years and spend all this time in autopsies and crime scenes and everything, because I wanted to understand what that duality was, what that terror addiction place was. And I got right into it, I got to tell you. So let's get, as we sort of close this thing out, I, I well, let's get into something that, that I absolutely have to know about. One of the things that I love about what you do and, and who you are is, you know, this is not that French chef in a toque uh, kind of cooking conversation. You are passion and humor and, and fun. And as I said before, you've got this recipe for squash English muffins that just completely, I mean, if there's ever like a personality badge for you, it's that. It's like, <laughs> can I put squash in that? Sure, I can. Watch me. And then you just wrote about it. And I just howled when I read it. So as we get out of this conversation, which um, I'm deeply glad that we've been able to have, let us, let us please go back to pancakes for a minute. Just just walk me through the perfect pancake breakfast at your house. Like, which pancake is it, Oh, Amy? oh, that's when, so... When you sit down with your boys and your husband. Yep. So it's got to be... So wheat has white bran or red bran. And most bran... I mean, most of the wheat that we have is has this red bran, and that... I mention that because it's got tannins in it, and that makes it slightly bitter. Mm-hmm. The white wheats, however, are they don't have any of those tannins, and so many different flavors, floral, nutty, all the, each type of white wheat has its own characteristic just jumping out. So that is the perfect kind of wheat for pancakes. And right now, the only one that I have, it would have to be ground up in this tabletop mill that we have. Um, and it was white mm-hmm. wheat that was grown by my neighbor, uh, my pancake farmer friend, I call him, Howard. He's uh, he's in Troy also. And um, those pancakes would be made with baking powder, baking soda, a little bit of salt, eggs, a little bit of yogurt, and milk. And then you mix up the dry ingredients, add in the wet ingredients, let everything sit because the important thing with whole grain baking is to let things absorb for about 10 minutes. Um, And then goes on to the griddle. The griddle is very important. It's very nice if you have a round griddle because I think there is something visually spiritually satisfying by looking at round things so i have Mm -hmm. this round griddle that i've had forever and i would make the pancakes and i have yogurt on yogurt and butter on my pancakes one of my sons has maple syrup only and likes to eat them one at a time and then the other one (laughs) wants fruit and yogurt and maple syrup and my husband just goes for butter and maple syrup, and he can eat them two at a time. Okay. <laughs> well, it's a great picture, and it's a it's a wonderful life the way you live it. I, I'm I'm so enamored of the idea of living your politics and fighting for food justice and bringing our attention to the people that supply our tables with such bounty. So thank you, Amy. It's been a joy to talk to you, and I and I look forward to talking with you again. 
Thank you, Marion. This was fun. You're welcome. That's Amy Halloran. Her book, The New Bread Basket, is found wherever books are sold. Follow her on Instagram as The Flower Ambassador and on Twitter as Farm Brain. And see her online under her own name. I'm Marion Roach-Smith, and you've been listening to Cordy. Cordy is produced by Overit Studios in Albany, New York. Reach them at overitstudios.com. Our producer is Adam Claremont. Our assistant is Lorna Bailey. Want more on the art and work of writing? Visit marionroach.com and take a class with me. And thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to QWERTY and listen to it wherever you go. 